Let us begin our sermon with prayer. Gracious Lord, as we look to your incarnation by viewing your human parents, Joseph and Mary, we ask you to bless our sermon, that we may see your grace in being true God, who became true man. Let us learn to accept your will as Joseph and Mary did, and also to see your grace at work to deliver us and fulfill your plan to redeem us. Amen. Our text for our sermon is Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. Jesus was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli. This is the word of our Lord. Throughout our Advent season, we have been working on the theme, Lessons on the Coming of Our Lord from His Genealogy. Well, we're here to celebrate the birth of, his, of our Savior, and Jesus it was not his role. He did not get married and have children, so this is it. His birth, that stops it. So we're going to look at Joseph and Mary today, and our overriding theme for today in that lessons from his genealogy is, He comes in astonishing ways. Now, we have a problem. If you look at Matthew's genealogy, which is what we've been preaching on so far, everything with Matthew, Matthew starts and works its way to Joseph. Luke mentions Joseph, first he mentions Jesus, and then he works backwards. But their genealogies do not line up until you get to King David. So in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, we're told Jesse was the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah. Now, Matthew giving us the genealogy for Joseph, if you were a Jewish person and you hear the words of Luke that uh, he was the father, so it was thought, it wouldn't bother you. You'd say, okay, he adopted this kid. And as far as the laws that God had established, when a person had adopted a child, it was considered theirs. Their genealogy, their inheritance became theirs, even if, as we know scientifically today, the DNA isn't there. But Luke, if you trace Luke's genealogy back, like I said, it does not line up. They are completely out of whack until you get to David. So at Luke verses 31 through 32, the first half, we're told the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. So for some reason, Matthew says that you have a genealogy through Solomon. And who's this Nathan guy? that is mentioned by Luke. Well, in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 5, we're told of David, these sons were born to him in Jerusalem, four sons of Bashua, the daughter of Amiel, Shemaiah, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. So this Bashua is just another name for Bathsheba. And we know Solomon was her son. Very apparently, Solomon had an older brother named Nathan. Ah, So how can Matthew and Luke, how can they give different genealogies after David from two different sons? Well, you really don't have to think too hard about this. Because Luke says he was, Jesus was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. So follow along for a minute. Matthew, who is a Jewish man whose audience, original intended audience, is Jewish people. And so he gives Joseph's genealogy because to the Jewish way of thinking, Joseph would have adopted Jesus, even though he wasn't his biological father, and all is well. But who does Luke predominantly write to? Luke is predominantly writing to Gentiles. And to Gentiles, and even to our modern way of thinking, you go, but he's not Joseph's son like that unless he has 
David's DNA in him and Abraham's DNA. Well, he'd have Abraham's DNA because Mary was, in fact, a descendant of Shem, just like uh, uh, Joseph was. However, we've also got to understand that when the Bible talks about somebody being their father, the, the Hebrew language at the Old Testament was written and really didn't have a word for grandfather. So, for example, you could be a Jewish person living in the time of Joseph and Mary and say, my father was a wandering Aramean. You'd be talking about Abraham. You'd be quoting scripture, but you'd actually be talking about your ancestor. So if we think about Luke this way as a parenthetical statement, Jesus was the parenthetical statement. Jesus was the son of Joseph. So it was thought end of parenthetical statement, the son of Heli. So biologically, the last male in Jesus's line would be Mary's father. The reason why the genealogies don't line up until David is Luke is telling us Joseph was thought to be his father. He wasn't. So the next male to Jesus, his grandfather, that would be Mary's father. So Luke is giving Mary's genealogy. That's what makes the most sense. And we don't have a contradiction in scripture there, especially when you consider Luke is writing to Gentiles. Now, this is a comfort for you and I. First of all, if you're Jewish, Jesus is your savior. We see that through Matthew and the adoption from Joseph. And, if you're, and of course, Mary also being Jewish. If you're a Gentile, we've already covered in the genealogy three women, descendants of Ham from the ark. Uh, Abraham was a descendant of Shem. That, that Jesus has three descendants of Ham. Gentiles already in his genealogy, Gentile women, because the seed of the man being passed along until we get to Mary. And but if so, if you're a Gentile, you see he's a savior for you as well, because he also is a descendant of Abraham and David, according to Mary's genealogy. So he's got that DNA and got all of God's promises are fulfilled. Abraham, the descendant would be his to Judah's descendant would be his to David. The descendant would be his. And so we see Jesus is the savior for Jew and Gentile. He has an astonishing parentage, supposed to be the son of Joseph, truly the biological son of Mary. But it doesn't stop there. Joseph, when Mary comes back from visiting her relative Elizabeth, he's engaged. And to the Jewish people at that time, they had a high view, at least of engagement. Now, they, as we find out, they were pretty quick to, could be pretty quick to divorce. But uh, Joseph recognizes, I got a problem here. Uh, she's got a baby bump. And I know I haven't done what it means to lead to a child. So in, in, when you were engaged, you were considered as good as marriage, except for the marriage bed. That, that was still off limits. So he has in mind to divorce her quietly when the angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. And he tells him uh, in Luke, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, quoting the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7, he says, look, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we're also told when the angel Gabriel had appeared to Mary, unlike Zechariah, she doesn't say, give me a sign so I can believe this. She believes it, but she says, how is the Lord going to do this? So in Luke chapter one, verses 34 through 35, we're told Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. 
This is how the promise, the first promise of the Savior, recorded in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is fulfilled. When we are told the seed of the woman. Now, the Hebrew word for seed is what a man provides in a baby. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head and the serpent will crush or bite his heel. Every male descendant from Abraham on down being circumcised passed on the genealogy of, of, of the last promised ancestor, especially after David, of David, until we get to Heli. And then God says, no, I'm just going to take that what you and I would call the zygote, the egg of the woman, and I will knit a humanity uh, out of that. Now, Jesus is true God, begotten of the Father in all eternity, who takes on human flesh, not having a biological father. There was no intercourse that leads to having a child. And so what this tells us is he doesn't have a sinful nature. He doesn't have a human father. And so God, he is true God. God the Father is his father, begotten in all eternity, who becomes true man. It's important that he be both God and man for us. And yet he also had a human father by adoption who would raise him up and show him how to be a man in Jewish society. So with all of that, we recognize as a man, he can be tempted in every way. As a man, he can be our substitute because he's a human being. He can be born under the law. As a man, he can die. As God, he can be tempted in every way, yet remain holy. As God, who cannot die because he's the God-man, his death, the, God, the death of the God-man, will not just atone for the sins of one person, but for all the world. And so this astonishing parentage that he has, begotten of the Father in all eternity, no sexual intimacy ever happening, uh, but gets his humanity from Mary, biologically the son of Mary, supposed to be the son of Joseph, who actually takes the role of father for him and basically adopts him. And in fact, this is so apparent that, that Joseph is such a father for him, it, it doesn't, it's not that he forgets him, that we're told when Jesus preaches in the synagogue he would have grown up in, in Nazareth, in Luke chapter 4, verse 22, we're told they all spoke well of him and were impressed by the words of grace that came from his mouth. And they kept saying, isn't this Joseph's son? They just couldn't get over it. But lessons in the coming of our Savior from his genealogy, we see he comes in astonishing ways. He has astonishing parentage. He is begotten of the Father in all eternity, true God who became true man, supposed to, be the, supposed to be the son of Joseph, but only his son through basically adoption and yet the biological son of Mary. Now, going back to that dream Joseph had, when you think about it, Joseph sees this woman he's engaged to, he loves, she's got a baby bump. And he knows it's not his. Now at that time, if he said she's committed adultery against me, they drag her out of town and stone her. He loves this woman, even though she's cheated on him. And he has in mind to divorce her quietly. Well, that's going to be quite a cross on Joseph, because if he divorces her quietly, people will think, Joseph, you naughty man, you got her pregnant and you used her. If he divorces her uh, bluntly out in the public, she, her life's in jeopardy and he loves her too much for that. So he has in mind to divorce her quietly when the angel speaks to him in a dream and tells him, don't divorce her. This child's from God. And in fact, you're to name the child Jesus and tells him, now this is what was prophesied. So in Matthew chapter one, verse 24, we're told something astonishing. When Joseph woke up from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife. But he was not intimate with her until she gave birth to his firstborn son, and he named him Jesus. Now, I want to digress just for a minute. Notice it doesn't say, but he was not intimate with her, period. It says he was not intimate with her 
until she gave birth to her firstborn son. When the Bible talks about Jesus having brothers and sisters, and they do that in Nazareth, don't his brothers and sisters live among us? We know one of his brothers was James. They're not fully his brother and sisters, they're his half-brothers and sisters. God did not tell Joseph and Mary, you're not allowed to have the blessing of intimacy I give in marriage. It's just that Joseph waited until sometime after the baby was born, right? He wanted to make sure his wife was healed up and everything. So the only reason to think that the uh, people claim that when it talks about James being Jesus's brother, that they really just meant his cousin. The only reason to do that is if you belong to a cult that worships Mary. That's it. And, and need her to be a perpetual virgin. The scripture does not say that. You can't find it scripture. Thanks for my digression. Now, when that angel Gabriel had appeared to Mary and told her, and think about Mary's position. Uh, how am I going to explain this to Joseph? Mm, what are the people of town going to think? And yet in Luke chapter 1, verse 38, uh, uh, after the angels done talking to her, we're told, then Mary said, see, I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Joseph and Mary had an astonishing acceptance of the Lord's will because the whole town of Nazareth is going to look at them and go, oh, Joseph, you naughty boy, you went to that marriage bed before you were married. And, and Mary, let's admit it, if they're like modern people today, they're going to say, oh, Mary, you slut. They would bear that bad reputation. Now, think about something else that we often overlook. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken. Joseph, as a descendant of David, would need to go to Bethlehem. And, and yet, that doesn't mean that his wife, who was very pregnant, would have to go. He could have hired a midwife to watch over her and left her behind and accounted for her in the coming child. So we never ask, why didn't he? Well, we know by prophecy that Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem, but we often forget the fact that if Joseph had left her behind in Nazareth, they might have connected the dots and said, you know, Mary, you were gone during your first trimester visiting your relative, that Elizabeth. This isn't Joseph's child. We need to drag you out of town and stone you. Joseph taking her to Bethlehem, besides the fact that it was what God had in mind anyways, we're never told, though, that God told him you have to get down to Bethlehem for this child to be born. Joseph taking her to Bethlehem, part of that would be to protect her life. He was astonishingly faithful to her. He trusted in the Lord that she had not cheated on him. And we're told we often have this vision of Mary because she was very pregnant riding on a donkey or a mule. Joseph was a technician. We often translate that as carpenter. It's ever dawned on us he had tools that had to go along with him. It, I'm not saying it did happen. Maybe he rented a mule. But we're never told that there was a mule or a donkey there in Scripture. Mary may have had to make this on foot. And think about Mary being that pregnant, going to the Lord's will. And if you think that Joseph just went to the inn and, and they said, well, there's no room. Okay, well, you're going to the barn, babe. Sorry. That's not the kind of guy, if you connect the dots, Joseph was. He probably knocked on the door of every relative. And I would say it's safe to assume he may have knocked on every door in Bethlehem. I know it's a, it's a hardship. Can my wife, can we stay in your house? No. Joseph and Mary endured a lot of hardship. And then after the child is born and the Magi visit them, Herod the Great, and I've often said that's a wrong name for him. They should name him Herod the Awful because he was the worst even of his sons. Herod the Awful plans on killing every newborn child two years and younger, which he succeeds in doing. 
God could have sent a million angels to protect his sons, but God works through natural means. The little supernatural he does, he warns Joseph in a dream, get up and flee to Egypt. And then he tells Joseph, Herod is dead. You can return. Joseph finds out his son's in control of Bethlehem. So he says, you know what? We're going to go back to Nazareth. Nazareth means nothing. We're going to go to that nothing town. And there the child should be safe and have a safe place to grow. Why were these two so astonishingly faithful? Well, we're going to see here in a minute. They stayed in the word of God. God had given them faith through his word. He fed that faith through his word. So lessons in the coming of our Savior from his genealogy. He comes in astonishing ways. He has astonishing parentage, but Joseph and Mary had an astonishing acceptance of the Lord's will. And think about the crosses that they bear. This is not like the hucksters of, of prosperity theology today who scream, if you send, write, write your check out to me, all your savings, then God's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. They were blessed to be the parents, in Joseph's case, through adoption of our Lord. And yet there were a lot of crosses that came with that. God didn't put them in a palace. The child's born in a barn. Think about that. They were astonishingly faithful. That only comes from hearing the word of God. And we have to assume, therefore, like when they were in Nazareth, there were Jewish synagogues. They probably went there every Sabbath as well. Now, speaking of their going into the word, and the last major point that I want to make in this sermon Joseph and Mary were astonishingly faithful parents. Look at what they went through just to preserve this child's life. But for example, we hear when Jesus is 12 years old that it was their custom they went to the temple every year. Now, at age 12, it was the Father's will that Jesus stay behind and learn. And that's a comfort for you and I, because Jesus didn't have a sinful nature. He didn't fall asleep during the sermons. He didn't think they were boring. Uh, he interacted in Bible study, and, and, he, and he learned, but he didn't have a sinful nature that he would forget. You and I do that. We can go, that was a great Bible study. It's a great sermon. Then three days later, forget the whole thing and how it applied to us. Jesus was our Savior even there. But the fact that it becomes very clear that he's brought to the synagogue uh, every Sabbath, and they go to that, and even they go, they go to the Jerusalem at least once a year, and, and when they did leave him behind, and Mary basically says, where have you been? I've been worried sick. Jesus, didn't you know where to find me? You should have known I'd be about my father's business. Temple should have been the first place, not the last place you looked. And Jesus didn't say that smart alecky at all. It was the Father's will that he stay and learn. But all that we see... Jesus set aside his deity there to learn the word of God perfectly for you and I so we can get credit for that. But as he's recognized in, in the synagogue and everything in Nazareth, it becomes clear that Joseph and Mary were faithful parents, faithful to the Lord, faithfully bringing up the Lord himself in his very own word. Now, sometimes you see it where parents have a, a child, I hate church, I don't want to go, and most children are like that. But then they try to say, okay, my little darling, you don't have to go. Or they do the opposite. Oh, you'll go or you're going to regret it. And the child hates church and they grow up staying away. We botch it there too, so we're thankful we have a Savior. But you know, lots of times parents forget that what you do, what they need to do is, what did you learn in Sunday school? What did you learn from the sermon? How does this apply to our lives? Because the pastor, when he writes the sermon, he has to write it in a general way. So lots of times, once we're discussing this at home, ah, then the light bulb can go, this is why the word of God is so important. But if Joseph and Mary were faithful parents for, to our Savior, who even learned the word of God for us perfectly, because we botch it, then that Savior, when we're brought to faith in him through that same word that kept Mary, Joseph and Mary astonishingly faithful, that same word works in us to, to, and God becomes our brother, our Savior. And that means you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, we have a sinful nature. 
Joseph and Mary, maybe at times, oh my goodness, we got to go to Egypt for this kid? Oh, and they did it faithfully. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes because of our sinful nature, we'll real quick to tell God how to be God. And we'll tell our brothers and sisters in Christ, this is how you serve me. This is how you serve me now. This is my will. But when we have the blood of Christ in us, when we're coming to the word and we're being forgiven and our new person is nourished by that word, then we look at our brothers and sisters in Christ and even our unbelieving neighbor and we say, God has served me by saving me and making me his child. I'm his child by adoption. And by that Jewish way, he says, no, as far as I'm concerned, you're, you're my child. And so we look at each other and we say, you're my brother and sister. God served me, so I'm willing to serve you. And when all of us fight the sinful nature to say, and yeah, and here's how you can serve me. When we all have that attitude, how beautiful it is. Our little local congregation even can come across as a, as a very loving family, not a bickering and fighting family. And the whole Christian church can do that when we put aside our sinful nature. And so we see lessons in the coming of our Lord from his genealogy. He comes in astonishing ways. He has an astonishing parentage. He's begotten in all eternity by the Father. He takes on human flesh. So biologically, he's the son of Mary. He's, he's supposed to be the son of Joseph, but he's the son through adoption. Joseph's a good father. So we see Joseph and Mary had an astonishing acceptance of the Lord's will. And we see Joseph and Mary were astonishingly faithful parents. They didn't do it perfectly, but they were very faithful. And so we are, because of that child they raised up, because of God taking on human flesh, being our Savior, we are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Merry Christmas. Now may the God of all grace fill you with complete hope, peace, joy, and love, so that you overflow with complete hope, peace, joy, and love by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.